Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. As we've been reminded, this is God speaking to His people that we should know Him, that He reveals Himself to us through the words of Scripture. We're in Exodus chapter 6, and we'll take it up in verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses went before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children out of Israel out of the land. Of Egypt, thus far the word of our God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as you have made yourself known through your Son, the living word, and as we take up the living inspired word, the holy men of old, moved along by the Holy Spirit, God of God, the one who spoke, speaks yet now in our day. O God, speak to our hearts through the preaching of your word. Lord, we acknowledge as you have declared it is foolishness to men. But by the working of your spirit, it is the power of you, our God, unto salvation. Lord, as a people, redeemed, feed us, refresh us, instruct us, correct us. Yea, O God, rebuke us. But above all, Lord, give us eyes to see Christ and build us up in our holy religion. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Remember the context in which these things take place. The, the church of old, the church as we might refer to it, in, in its infancy, the children of Abraham are oppressed in Egypt. They are slaves. They do not have the freedom to do as they will day by day. In this situation, in, in the bondage and oppression, they've raised their voices to God uh, in desperation for some time. God has heard them. He met Moses then, the Hebrew himself, living in exile in Midian. God met him in a remote part of the wilderness, appeared to him in a bush that was burning, yet not burned up. And God told Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, and I've come down to deliver them out of Egypt. And I'm sending you to be the one to bring them out, to deliver them out of the house of bondage. Well, Moses objected to this commission and, and command that God had put upon him. Uh, he objected that he, you know, he was a man of weak lips. But the Lord God prevailed over Moses, and Moses went to Egypt. And he spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. And ever since that pronouncement, 
things have gotten worse. The matters have escalated. Moses has faced many problems. Pharaoh made the labor for the Hebrews much harder. Not only did they have to make as many bricks, but they had to go find the straw to make the bricks with. And so it was an impossible task. And so the Egyptian overlords were beating the Hebrew uh, foreman, and they cried out. The foreman blamed Moses for all had gone wrong. They said to him, you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put the sword in their hands to kill us. Moses turned to the covenant faithful Lord. He took the matter to the Lord, to the one who had made himself known to Moses in the wilderness as the great I am. Moses went to him. Moses brought the whole matter, and he he lays it out. He even goes so far as to blame the Lord. He says, why have you brought this trouble on this people? And why is it that you have sent me? What a mess. Our lives are often like this. Problems, oppression, escalation, desperation. The Lord, though, does not rebuke Moses in his weakness. So remember that. The Lord did not rebuke Moses in his weakness. The Lord did not belittle Moses for his little faith. Indeed, the Lord reminds Moses over and over, as we've just heard in this passage, I am the Lord. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. I mean, verse yes, 2, 4, 6, 7, and 8. And in this desperate situation, God turns the whole focus on himself. Moses says, Lord, you sent me, and you brought this on the people, and he tells the Lord, God says, I am the Lord. I'm the self-sufficient one. I'm the exalted one. In this situation, God makes himself known to Moses as the one who saves. We want to learn, it is, we mentioned this in earlier sermons on this text, it's always best to take our problems to the Lord. Not to one another and grumbling and murmuring, but to the Lord, to the one who is sovereign over all, the one who can take care of it all. Learn from Moses. What is our biggest problem? Now, we can list many things as we look at our present circumstances, but I would say to you the biggest problem we have is sin. We are sinners. Because of our first father, Adam's sin, we all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. We come into the world as sinners and we sin. And we dwell with sinners and it brings problems upon us all. We need salvation. And God is the God of salvation. It's what God announced in the garden of Genesis 3.15, that he would send one, a particular one, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, even though bruised in the heel, speaking of Christ. But he's also the one that we find the saints in Revelation around the throne singing, salvation is of our God and of the Lamb. This morning we're going to look at this passage with three main points. God's promise of salvation, the response of the Israelites, and God's encouragement for perseverance. And then we'll conclude with some applications. So our theme is salvation is of our God that he alone should be glorified. Salvation is of our God that he alone should be glorified. We begin with God's promise of salvation. 
in, in verse 5, God responded to Moses when he came to him, and he said, he told him he remembered his covenant. This is why he came in the first place, the covenant he made with Abraham in the wilderness. As Abraham was a wanderer, a pilgrim, a, had not a place to call his own, or as the scripture says, no city. But he was looking for a city whose builder was God. But here's Abraham, no descendants, and God promised to him that the land that he walked on, the land that he saw, he would give to Abraham's children. He made this covenant with him. He sealed it with the the dividing of the animals and the the smoking pots and the flaming torch. That God would do as he said he promised to do. In this situation, we might have expected that God would tell Moses or his people what they needed to do to be saved. God might have told him, you know, we'll take your, your plowshares and your pruning hooks and beat them into swords and spears. But God's focus is on himself. What follows in this passage is seven I wills. Some of you remember when Pastor LaValley with us uh, uh, preached the I wills of God from one of the Psalms. I was thinking of that here with these seven I wills. And in these seven I wills, there are four promises. Some of them have two I wills connected to them, but there's four promises. And this passage begins with, I am, this is all caps L-O-R-D, I am the covenant faithful Lord. It's punctuated in the middle with that, and it concludes with it as well. The first promise is that God will rescue and give them liberty. God will rescue them and give them liberty. This is the first and second I wills. We see this in verse 6 of the chapter. God says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will. Not you, Moses. Not the people by their own hand. God says, I will do this. And then he says, I will rescue you out of their bondage. This is a promise to end the slavery that has oppressed Israel for 400 years. God had told Abraham that his children would go into Egypt and they would be slaves. But they just said at the end of the 400 years, he would deliver them out. And indeed, it was exactly that. We will find that marker later on in the text. It would seem hopeless. We ever suffered anything 400 years? Of course not. We don't even live 400 years. We think if we're suffering something for four days or even four hours that we've suffered much. We've not suffered unto death, uh, to the shedding of blood. These people are now shedding blood. They're being beaten. But God has seen. And God said, I will deliver you. I will give you, I will rescue and give you liberty. The promise comes to them in the midst of, of their crying out to God. The second promise is God's promise of redemption. And this is critical. The first one, the delivery from bondage, to be rescued out of slavery, would be (coughs) a temporary matter if it were not for God's promise of redemption. Also in verse 6, God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. This is the third, I will. I will redeem you. Back in those days, men wore long flowing robes with sleeves. And if a man was going to do combat, uh, he would maybe pull his sleeve up and bare his arm to wield his weapon or throw off that outer cloak. And and then you could see his might and the strength of his arm as he would go to wage war. This is the picture 
God is saying, I will bear my arm, I will stretch out my arm, and I will redeem you. Now, you might have expected that with the rescuing, the delivering aspect, but God says, no, I will show my strength in my redemption. This points to Christ. This is showing forth Christ in God's redeeming grace when it seems at the weakest moment, uh, when, when it seems that Christ, his heel is bruised, he's on the cross and all is lost. God is showing his outstretched arm. He's showing his strength. He confounds men and angels. He confounds the powers of darkness when Satan thinks he's triumph. God's bare arm shows his strength and he redeems his people. Redemption is paying the price to free the slave. I was thinking back to our nation's history in the 19th century where some slaves would escape from the south and they'd be making their way to the north and they'd get caught. People would seize them. They'd bring them back to their slave owner and they were back in the servitude because they had not been redeemed. But if someone bought them and paid the redemption price and gave them their freedom, no one could enslave them again. They were free. That's the picture here. The greater picture is God's redeeming grace, God's paying the penalty and the price to redeem a people. And it was critical for the people of Israel that they be redeemed. And how did not God do that? We're going to see in the 12th chapter of this book that it's at the Passover. By the shedding of blood and putting on the doorposts and on the lentil, that the death angel went, out through, went throughout the land, God preserved and protected the firstborn of Israel, because Israel is his firstborn. And he struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, and the penalty was, the price was paid, and God brought them out. He delivered them not only from the bondage, but he gave them freedom. A redeemed person is free indeed. My friends, so often people try to solve their problems with sin. They, they look at their life, it's a mess, and it's like, I can't keep going this way, it's going to bring my ruin, and they muster their gumption, they make resolutions, and they're still slaves to sin because they've not been redeemed. It's by the blood of Christ, it's by the work of what Christ has accomplished on the cross that we are redeemed It's set free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And here we see a foreshadowing of this in God's promise to redeem Israel. They do not understand this in its fullness. It will come, become more clear to them, even as we will make our way through ecstasy. But we see the Passover points to Christ on the cross, the redeeming grace of God. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Well, the third promise, God's third promise, is adoption. And we see this in the fourth and the fifth I wills in verse 7. You hear it. God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Take is its a word in the Hebrew that's used in, in many different ways in the original language. One of them is when a man takes a wife. It may be that you, you take your donkey and lead it. It's just used very generally. But here the application is this idea of adoption, taking someone and adopting them, making them part of their family, bringing them into relationship to you. And that God, when God says, I will take, and that is one of the uses. It's not contrived. It is what the word can be used for, the matter of adoption. Notice the radical change that God's talking about. You were slaves. I will free and redeem you 
and then I will take you to be my people. You'll be relationship with me, and I will be your God. What a glorious uh, transformation. Reminds me of what Christ accomplishes on the cross. Uh, cross. You know, John, Professor John Murray for Westminster talked about the marvelous manipulation of the accounts. On our account, there's the debt of sin. And on Christ's account, there's righteousness. And without righteousness, no one shall see the Lord. So we who are in debt with sin can't see the Lord. But the marvelous the manipulation of the account is God takes the sin of his people. He places it on Christ and then pours out his wrath on Christ. Christ buries it. Then God takes the righteousness of Christ and he counts it to our account. We've done nothing. Just like in this passage, it's God. I will. I will. I will. God is doing it. A marvelous Manipulation of the count. Israel's in servitude. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. God says, I will rescue you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will adopt you. You will be my people. And I will be your God. And God is still doing this in our day. He is still redeeming sinners. He is still pouring out his grace. God is still at work rescuing those in the bondage of sin. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to, Gen- uh, to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. And he says, I will be a God to you and to your children after you in their generations. Ongoing, unfolding God. God at work. This promise shows us the heart of God. We see the heart of God in this promise and, and God carried it out. He loved Israel not because they were lovely. They were not. He, 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 didn't lo- he didn't do this because they were worthy. They are unworthy. In fact, they're, they're rebels. They're disobedient. Uh, they're very much affected and infected by Egypt. There's idolatry in their hearts. And we'll see that play out throughout the Exodus, even coming into the land. But here we see God's covenant promises fulfilled. We see the very heart of God that he loves the unlovely. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm certainly unlovely. I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched, miserable sinner. I'm mindful every day as I wake up and when I lay my head down on the pillow of the night, just what a sinner I am. The heart of God loves his people. And he redeems and he rescues. And he adopts. I will be your God. And he goes so further. And we, we see that in, in Romans. You will remember that the spirit that God gives to us through Christ teaches our hearts to say, Habba, Father. That's the word for father, a child calling his father from two different languages of that day. Here's the heart of God. Here in the book of Exodus. Here when Israel's going, ah, it's all lost. It had been better if God had left us alone. Yeah, we were in servitude, but now it's even worse. God says, I will do this. I will take you for my people. And then we come to the fourth promise. It is the promise of possession, the, the giving of possession. We see these in the sixth and seventh I wills in verse 8. God says, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and I will give it to you. I will bring you in and I will give you the land as a heritage. This is what God had promised, as I mentioned earlier. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees. God says, get up and go to a land that I will show you. 
And Abraham believed God, and he went and obeyed. And God says, this land that you see, I will give to your descendants after you. God is remembering that promise 430 years at the beginning of Abraham's calling, 400 years later, we're over, well over 400 years. God has not forgotten. God keeps his covenant. And he was going to give them the land. This promise should not uh, bring us to think about things on this earth alone. Certainly God provides for us. God meets our temporal needs. We have just prayed moments ago, give us this day our daily bread. We are dependent upon God for all things for life now on this earth. But he gives us even what we need for a life of godliness. But ultimately God has promised we will be with him in heaven. That's what Abraham longed for, as I mentioned earlier, a city whose builder was not men, its, its builders, God. Abraham looked for, he longed for that land. He came to understand that that strip of soil along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean was not what God had promised him, but heaven, to be with God forevermore, to be in his presence. This is God's faithfulness. Remarkable. I am the Lord. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I am the covenant faithful Lord. What did God say to Moses? He says, verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, Go tell them this. Now remember, we've talked about this before. Moses is a prophet. He's sent by God. He is to go as an ambassador. He's to take God's message and deliver it to the people. He's not to embellish on it. He's not to manipulate it. He's not to modify it. He's to deliver it to the people. It is God's faithful, true word. So we see, secondly, the response of the Israelites. Moses goes. He brings the message to them. Verse 9, Moses obeyed God. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. He did as he was commanded. He was obedient. Moses is learning to walk with the Lord. Moses has not had it easy. Moses is going to find it gets much more difficult. But God is bringing Moses along. It's through the oppression and the suffering that Moses' faith is growing. He's learning to depend upon the Lord and not on himself. And so he goes to the children of Israel and he proclaims the message. Moses preached God's words to God's people. That's what a faithful preacher is always to do. And once more, Moses comes with this message of salvation. This is not the first time. God has promised he's going to deliver them. And the first time it said they believed God. And we talked about, was that saving faith? Well, I think it's clear from the context that it's not, at least for the host. But there certainly would have been those who did have, a remnant within, who believed that promise of God, that God was faithful and true. But here we see how the people responded. They didn't believe this time. So whatever they had last time was different this time. But they did not heed Moses. They didn't listen to him. They didn't believe him. Remember their accusations. So since you showed up, everything's gotten worse. Since you came with this promise of deliverance, our lives have become miserable. We're going to see them make similar complaints once they're out in the wilderness as well. We see ourselves in some degree in them. Disbelief and discouragement gripped them, and so they paid no heed to Moses' words. Why? Why was it? Well, we're told. Notice it goes on in verse 9, because. But they did not heed the word of Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. We're told 
the difficult. The circumstances overwhelm them. That's often the case when sinners hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ preached. They look at their circumstances, and because of the anguish of their circumstances, they don't heed the call of God where Christ says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. They look at their circumstances, and they're hopeless. It's only by the working of God's Spirit that the sinner can hear that call and come when God calls them. And so here we find Israel. They're, they're in difficulty. The, the first one, it's literally, uh, the literal language is shortness of breath. You think of the marathoner. You're running. and comes in, he's just <sighs> gasping. And it's just the picture. Their oppression is so great that they are short of breath. They are out of breath. Their weariness is overwhelming. They have lost heart and hope. And then the reasons given because of cruel bondage. But has God not just told them, I will deliver you from that? And yet they're not believing that promise. The boot of their oppressor is hard on their necks. And since Moses has showed up, since they started listening to Moses, it's only gotten worse. You can imagine they're fearful to, to, to continue to follow this Moses. Uh, they're going to complain often about that. There's a lesson here for us. For those of us who believe God, there are challenges throughout our lives, challenges to our faith. But it's in the challenges, it's in the fires of adversity that we grow. When the blacksmith is taking what is a mild steel and it's more easily manipulated, but then if he wants it to be useful and, and maintain sharpness, it must be heated and hammered and heated and hammered, and then it becomes tempered. That never happens without adversity. Our faith grows in adversity. We, we come to the end of ourselves. We see our inadequacy. We see our insufficiency. And we go to the one who alone is able to deliver. And he's at work in all that, that we would grow up in Christ, unto Christ, to become more like Christ. So Moses delivered the message. Israel refused to listen to it. What's next? Does God say, well, Moses, back up your kit, back to Midian you go? No. God says, go back to Pharaoh. That's when it all got bad, but God says, go back to Pharaoh. Moses has a commission. He was given a commission and a commandment in the wilderness, and God would see that he brings his servant along to fulfill that mission and complete that commission. And that brings us then thirdly to God's encouragement and persistence. Verse 10 11, we see God renew the command to Moses to speak to Pharaoh. There's no change. And the Lord spoke to Moses. This is the covenant faithful Lord. Remember, this is so key all through the L-O-R-D, all cap, the covenant faithful Lord. He's being faithful even in pressing Moses forward. He says, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel grow out of this land. Same message. It's not been modified. The grumbling, the murmuring, the heartaches, the hardness of Pharaoh, none of it makes a difference. God's word prevails. Brothers and sisters, remember that in our day. God does not change. So he sends Moses, and he tells verse 11, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the children of Israel grow out of his land. Same message, same response. Notice the action. God says, go, speak. That's what ambassadors to do. It's what a faithful preacher is to do. Go and speak. And God knows Moses is going to object. He's heard it before. 
Back in chapter 4, verse 1, what did Moses say? Well, what if, what if the people don't listen? And they didn't. And sure enough, Moses complains again in verse 12. And, the Mos- and Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel did not heed me. In some sense, I said, well, maybe that was the easy part. These are my countrymen. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? You see the comparison? Moses is looking at the landscape. He's looking at the situation. He's still learning to look to God. He's still learning to depend upon God. We're going to see Moses grow through the book of Exodus. We're going to see Moses' faith mature. We will see that Moses will always continue to be a sinner with weaknesses. There will be points where he stumbles even greatly. But Moses is growing in his faith, and he's growing to become a man of God so that down the road God will say of Moses, there is no more humble man on the face of the earth. But Moses is early on. It's like us early in our Christian life when we're new converts, when we're growing to the Lord. Moses is there. And so he objects. The children of Israel didn't listen to me. How they'll Pharaoh heed me. And then he says something interesting. He says, for I'm an uncircumcised lips. You remember when Moses was at the bush? This was the same thing. He's basically saying, I got a speech impediment. The, the language here it literally says, I have foreskin on my lips. Thus, uncircumcised. It's not been cut off. You know, the idea of I'm, I'm slow speech, I'm not eloquent, I have a heavy lip. But there's probably something more. I'm convinced there's something more because the analogy of Scripture, uncircumcised lips is a metaphor for unclean lips. Remember Isaiah 6? In the year the king Uzziah died, the Lord appeared before Isaiah, he sees the Lord seated high upon his throne, and he falls down before God. He says, I am rent asunder, I am ruined, for I have seen the Lord, and I am a man of unclean lips, uncircumcised lips. And then the angel comes and takes the coal of fire. He says, see that I have cleansed your lips. He touches his mouth so that Isaiah could go be the prophet of God. Moses is in this same situation. He's being given a message from God. He's growing his understanding. And I think that what Moses is saying, my lips are unclean. How then can I speak the words of the covenant faithful Lord to this pagan king with my lips? It's the concern that should weigh upon every faithful preacher week by week. Sinful lips. How is it that God can use sinful men with sinful lips to proclaim his word is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Moses needed. He needed to depend upon the Lord. And once more we see the long-suffering heart of God in his forbearance with the weakness of his choice servant. God chose Moses. Not because he was wise or mighty or eloquent. He chose him in his weakness to raise him up God, the long-suffering one. God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust and sinful dust as well. Could it be, I think it is so, that God decreed the failure for Moses? I use that on purpose. I often hear evangelicals, even reformed guys, say, well, God allowed. God doesn't just sit back and let some things happen. God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. He is sovereign. You've heard this from this pulpit again and again. He orders all things according to his purpose. And so God decreed that Moses would fail in his first attempt to bring Israel out so that Moses could not take the credit. God does not share his glory with another. The glory of rescuing the Hebrews. If, if, if Moses you know, had gone in and Pharaoh listened to him and he came out, everybody would say, Wow, Moses! But Moses failed 
Pharaoh's against him. The people are against him. Moses even's against himself. Moses' failure makes it clear to everyone, to Moses, to Israel, and to Pharaoh, Moses can't do this. And neither can you and I live the Christian life to the glory of God apart from God. We can't solve our problems. We can't cease from sinning on our own. As I mentioned earlier, you can't whip up the gumption or have the resolution or stiffen your will in order to overcome. God alone is the one who saves so that we all would learn to shout out that cry from the Reformation, sola de gloria, glory to God alone. And so we hear in verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a command. Same thing, right? Gave them the command. For the children of Israel, for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, did the children of Israel take the Israel out, take Israel out from the land of Egypt? Three times God has reminded Moses, I'm the Lord. God is done with objections, but he's not harsh. He just gives the command again. Once more, and this time we see God commands Moses and Aaron. I think it's clear that Aaron's there. He's with Moses since he joined him. God sent him out to meet Moses coming from the wilderness, and Aaron's been at his side. But Moses is God's prophet. Aaron is Moses' prophet. But here we see that God is merciful. What was, what was God's answer to Moses in the wilderness? Your brother. I'll be as God to you. I'll put my words in you, and you will tell Moses, Aaron what to speak. So Moses is not going to go alone. God's already approved Aaron. And now we see this renewal of the commission of Aaron to go with Moses as his helper and his spokesman. It is not good that a man should be alone. Two are better than one, and God provides. Even as he sent the disciples, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, we find Moses and Aaron going to go together. What becomes difficult as we make our way through Exodus is when Aaron is there and when he's not. Just like uh, later on when we see Moses with Joshua. It's not always clear that Joshua's there, but if you start reading and paying attention, you start assuming that Joshua is pretty much there for everything up on the mountain because God's appearing Joshua, and he will lead. And so the command's renewed. Go speak to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out. John Currid sums it up well in his commentary. Their mission is to continue despite the objections of Moses, the apathy of the Hebrews, and the hatred of the Egyptians. Brothers and sisters, our mission is to continue despite our objections, despite the apathy that is in the church at times. And regardless of whether the world hates us or not, they will hate us because they hate our Lord. So God is done with dialogues. His prophets must go and stand in the gap. It's time to stand up and do what God's called them. I said we'd draw with, to go with, uh, in the conclusion with some applications. I remember again in the beginning of the garden, I mentioned this earlier on, that when Adam sinned, God came and made himself known to Adam, that he was the one who would say, remember, he shed blood, and then he clothed Adam and Eve. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Now that animal, probably a, a lamb, was not sufficient 
to pay for their penalty for sin, but it points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even as he clothed them in the garment that was once the skin of that animal, it points to the righteousness of Christ that God closes us in and wraps us in. The promise of God in the days of old is the promise of God's activity to save sinners through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great thread that runs right down through the course of the Scriptures, that God is the one who saves. God is a redeeming God, that God's covenant promise to Abraham are rooted in the greater covenant of the Father with the Son made in eternity past. The covenant with Abraham flows out of the covenant grace of grace with the Father and the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you have problems? I know you do. We're sinners. We have problems. Sometimes we lose sight of it. Our biggest problem, though, is our own sin. Yes, the world and the flesh of the devil are against us, but our flesh is what we do combat with most often. And what Jesus said, he says, if you would be my disciple, if you would come after me, you would take up your cross, and there you die daily, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's a big problem. That's a big task. We can't do it. But as we heard in John, the promise of Christ, he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, who is like me, my spirit, often referred to as the spirit of Christ, to be a helper and a comforter. God in us, that we might live for his glory. Apart from Jesus Christ, this morning, if you're apart from Jesus Christ, you are in the kingdom of darkness. You are a slave to sin. You are in bondage. And without hope, except in Jesus Christ alone, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father apart from him. You need to be honest about your own circumstances. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, says in the Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. Look at your life. It's hard. It's because you're bound up in sin. Now we know when we're set free from sin, life's still hard, but we don't go alone. We have Christ to strengthen us. So here, this record of Scripture reports that God, what God has done to save his people. I didn't tell you this, but I want to go back to it. The I wills, how do we hear that? It sounds like future tense, right? In the Hebrew, they're past tense. Because of the certainty of it. Remember the golden chain in Romans 8? Justified, sanctified, adopted, you know, it's all past tense. Glorified, not going to be glorified because it's certain. Why? Because of the covenant faithful Lord has decreed it, it will come to pass. And so said in the past tense, they're futuristic to be fulfilled. And God indeed fulfills them even as he has salvation in his son. So as we think of these I wills, we see it's Jesus Christ who delivers the sinner from the bondage of sin. The oppression, taking us as slaves out of the kingdom of darkness to bring us as children to the Father. It is Jesus Christ who is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who redeems us. The I will here being fulfilled in Christ. The redeemer has come. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
by the sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. He paid the penalty for sin. He set the captives free. The propitiation is the pain of the penalty. John uses that word in his first letter. The penalty is paid. We are redeemed. We are redeemed people to the glory of the Father. And Jesus then brings us to God, and God receives us as his children. We are adopted, children of the Father. And here we see the heart of the Father. Rebels, now children. Sinners, now believers. Enslaved, now free. And as God's people, able, as the Spirit equips us, to keep God's just, holy, and righteous law. God has sent the Holy Spirit into the sinner's heart to bring this salvation. Rebirth. As Jesus told Nicodemus that dark night, it comes from God. It's from above. It's of the Holy Spirit that God alone should be glorified. And with salvation then comes justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, increase of grace, perseverance to the end. These all come from Christ. Some of you are listening to uh, to, uh, Sinclair Ferguson. I hope you're all listening to his little five-minute podcast. Oh, that's just like, it's like a nice spoonful of uh, the best stuff. You've heard of the the honey stuff that's the the queen's pollen, which is the best. It's better than that. And he was making the emphasis so often, even as evangelicals, we focus on, we want in our justification, we want our adoption, we want these, like they're commodities, we want something to put in our bag, you know, okay, I've got that. You don't have those apart from Christ. It's only in Christ that these things come to us. It's in Christ alone, and we receive him by faith alone. And then God blesses us with his salvation. He he decreed it, and he has brought it to pass, and he applies it even today, that he would have all the glory. Amen? Sola de gloria. Father in heaven, we look to you with hearts that rejoice. We rejoice in what you have done and what you are doing and indeed what you will accomplish. And Father, because you are the covenant faithful Lord, we know that what you have decreed will surely come to pass. And so we are in the midst of our walk. We are in the midst of growing in holiness. And yea, O God, we are pilgrims in, in a foreign land that too often we get comfortable in. But, Lord, this morning we are reminded that it is you who saves. And we are so grateful, O God, because left to ourselves we would all perish in unrighteousness under your wrath forever. But, O God, we bless you. We thank you for Christ. And because of Christ and through Christ, we call the covenant faithful Lord, the mighty God, Father. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.